Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist, and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast or are new to it, I thank you very much. I would also appreciate if you took a moment to follow it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Writers and Illustrators of the Future is one of the longest-running writing competitions in the world, now celebrating four decades of providing a helping hand as initially conceived by Owen Hubbard. I also want to let you know that the Writers of the Future volumes are available in bookstores throughout the U.S., Canada, the U.K., South Africa, and Australia, as well as through all major online retailers. I'm here at Superstars Writing Conference in Colorado Springs, surrounded by writers, writers, and more writers. One author whose writing I really enjoy is the creator of Dresden Files, The Codex Alera, and a new series, The Cinder Spires, Jim Butcher. Welcome, Jim. Thank you very much. So um, I'm interested in, in wanting to be able to delve into how you evolved into being the best-selling author you are today. And a lot of the people that listen to this podcast are themselves aspiring writers, and it's an, it's an unreality that they've got that they'll ever be able to be an international best-selling author. But um, it's not necessarily to make you human, but kind of like to make you real to the people listening to this thing here so that they can then like, you know, get that encouragement that maybe they can persistence or whatever other things we're going to discuss will result in their, you know, making their next step there. So I also got to say, too, that when I, when I announced at my office that um, we're going to be doing an interview, you have so many super fans there at uh, Galaxy Press they were all like, yes, you know, <laughs> so that was, that was pretty cool. So did you always want to be an author? Uh, no, that didn't start until I was about 18. And uh, uh, I was at school one day, and this will give you an idea of who I was. Uh, I was at school, and I was cool enough as a senior in the last month of school to be skipping class uh, when you can kind of get away with it, you know, yeah. because the, 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 the teachers and the, and the staff and so on, they kind of just tolerate it because they know you're going to be out of their hair soon. Uh, uh, but I was skipping class, and I went to the library to hang out and read, uh, which sort of tells you who I was as a student. Uh, <laughs> Uh, uh, and while I was there, the vice principal walks in and is the vice principal in charge of discipline. And his name was Leroy Brown. So bad, bad Leroy <laughs> Brown was our, was our vice principal. And, uh, uh, and so I kind of panicked a bit when he walked in and he says, he says, Jim, what are you doing here? And then he goes, oh, you must be here for the author talk. And I'm like, yes, I am here for the author talk. And he's like, okay, help me set up some chairs. So I did, uh, uh, cause he knew exactly what was going on. <laughs> and, uh. And at that point, Margaret Weiss came in uh, to give a talk about being an author. And uh, she's the author, she, she's the co-author of the Dragonlance Chronicles, uh, along with Tracy Hickman. And uh, she's from Independence, which is my hometown, Independence, Missouri. And, uh, and she gave this talk about being a writer. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, you know, she's from Independence. She's from my hometown. If she can do it, maybe I can do it. Because she seems like just a regular person. Uh, uh, and so... It was after that that I started thinking maybe I should be a writer, and I started looking into it. And I, I wrote my uh, the next summer I wrote my first novel, which was the the first. Uh, no, God, no! It was it was a book that never got published. Uh, it took me ten years of writing to to break in, and uh, I think I had written eleven novels before I sold one. Um, and 
that first one was, you know, this epic fantasy that where I made all the beginner mistakes, you know, yeah. or, well, I made, I made a, a significant portion of the beginner mistakes and I saved the rest for the next several books after that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, it, and it was a terrible novel. Um, uh, there were bits and pieces of it that I, that I kind of tore apart for scrap and I used in later books. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, but it, it was, it was just bad. It was just a bad book. Uh, which is where you start. I mean, the first step at being good at something is is being is trying something and being bad at it. You know? Yeah. Did you? Um, so, what were you? What was your initial goal in, in life then? If you were up until that last month before graduating high school? Well, I've been looking at computers up until then. And uh, when I went to when I went to college, I went to college uh, in electrical engineering, which is where which was as close as they had to computer science at OU. Yeah. And uh, so I did that for my first year, and then I hit uh, uh, physics for engineers, and that was just beyond me. My head just didn't wrap around that. So I went from there to management information systems because that was also a lot of programming. But that was all programming to figure out taxes and stuff like that. And so uh, I had learned – and I had already been through a, a, a programming trade school in high school, so I knew my basic programming. And so I was – I did it again uh-huh. you know, in management information and, and I – got to a point where I realized this is not for me. This is, uh, this is, I'm going to be winding, I'm going to wind up at some company where I have to wear a tie and still do computer stuff all day and, and do boring stuff at computers. And I think I'll lose my mind. This isn't at all like video games. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, 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 and so then I went into education cause I thought being a teacher might be a good thing. Sure. And so I spent a year, uh, uh, as an education major, but they sent me out to observe teachers in the field. And, and the particular teachers I observed were possibly some of the most miserable human, human beings I've ever seen. <laughs> and so I said, yeah, which was unfortunate, yeah. you know, in terms of, in terms of, of my teaching career. Uh, so I said, okay, I don't want to do that. And so I sort of, what else can I do with my, with the, the scholarship money that I have remaining, you know, what can I actually finish? And so I sort of bottomed out in English. And uh, from there, wandered over to into uh, uh, journalism uh, to the professional writing school that they had there. And so I got my English degree, and then I went to graduate school for journalism and professional writing, and uh, uh, started learning from a professional author named uh, Debbie Chester, uh, who tried very, very hard to teach me very simple and important things about writing, and I resisted her because I had an English degree. <laughs> in English literature with an emphasis in creative writing. And I knew what I wanted to do. So why listen to the woman who had merely published 40 novels, you know? Uh, uh, and eventually I got to the point where when I did listen to her, I finally started learning some things and, and started getting somewhere. Uh, but it took a while and, and uh, uh, definitely it, it set my career back two or three years, my English degree. I get it. The sentence you talked about your computer because Harry Dresden with his on computers and on anything electronic, how they just kind of like, um, it fries when he's around himself. It just, yes. when, you, when you said it, kind of like, wow, I was wondering if that was something in there that like underneath, you know, subconsciously there is that, that aversion that grew on anything connected with no, that no tie and shirt and I actually I mean, I actually, I, I, I went into the computer industry after I was, when I was in grad school, 
and uh, started working at a local internet provider. And I was the guy who came in at 10 o'clock at night and, and my, my, just minded the store until six in the morning. And I'd had enough computer programming experience that I was usually able to put together some kind of solution so that I didn't have to get anybody out of bed. And so they loved me for that. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. they're, they're like, this is the ugliest programming I've ever seen. But you know what? I got to sleep until seven, so I don't care. You know, <laughs> yeah. you, know you kept the store running. Thank you. And, uh, um, and I also, that was where I wrote uh, my first several novels was on that job as well, because, you know, there would be calls until, you know, midnight or so, and then it would drop off. And then I'd have six hours of, you know, not much to do. And I would, I would work on books. Wow. That, that works out really good on that one there. Yeah. So you uh, said in your, your bio that um, usually only three in a thousand who make such attempt as becoming a professional author, actually managed to become published. Of those, only one in ten make enough money to call it a living. And so just on that, I'm not sure what those stats are from, but it's even gotten scarier now. Oh, yeah. Those were the stats in the 90s when it was friendlier. Yeah, yeah. because in 2023, there was an article on self-published books and author sales statistics. There are upwards of 4 million books published each year now, with 75% being self-published and selling an average of 250 copies per year or about $1,000. Right. You know, so it's it's gotten even all the harder since then. Because, yeah, there's more and more people writing, and it's it's harder and harder to to stand out and get that audience. Yeah. So one of the, uh, I guess, a common characteristic amongst authors is being an introvert, or as you said, you know, enjoy being a hermit, and you'd be totally fine just being oh, yeah. in your room, and just like writing away or watching, you know, your video game or a fire or whatever. So I'd like to talk about that because that's really common when I, when I talk to authors and how you overcome that. Because obviously now you've you've got a career, a very successful career, and you've got when you go out, you need to be, you got to put on that face, right? You know. So how do you deal with being an introvert and being an international best-selling author that everybody wants to get a piece of? Well. Being an introvert isn't something that you, you overcome. It's an advantage in this field. You know, uh, writing books is, is an inherently lonely profession. You know, you're doing it by yourself. So you're sitting there with the keyboard and there's nobody talking to you and there's nobody making you do it. You know, you've got to do it on your own. And, and it's just sort of you and your imagination and your imaginary friends. Uh, so it's not some, it's an advantage to be an introvert and be a writer, which I think is why there's so many of us who are writing. Uh, but you do have to learn to set it aside when you go out in public and talk to people. And, uh, I think the easiest way I did it was, I mean, the first, the first several years where I was, where I was writing, I would go out in public and nobody cared. So, you know, there'd be like a, a reading at a convention and nobody would show up to it or, you know, stuff like that. I would have an autograph session and nobody would be there. Uh, uh, but as the books got more popular, more and more people showed up and I had to start figuring out how to interact. And the first thing that, that I understood was that a lot of the people who liked my books were a lot like me. You know, and there was a reason they liked my books because we had, we shared a lot of things in common. And, uh, so I was, I found that I was able to talk to them about things that mattered to me, you know, the, the pop culture things that mattered to me, Buffy and Babylon 5, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and stuff like that and, and shows that we, but we all enjoyed, uh, and so that became a point of reference that I would lean on pretty heavily. And then, you know, what I did with 
with my life, I was, I was being a storyteller. And so I, I learned to take stories and to, to, to bring them into an oral format. And so there were a number of stories that I, that I had, you know, that I would tell, you know, my dog, you know, my Bichon Frise versus the bears, uh, to, you know, to save my son and tell that, tell that story of, of, of my, my, my Bichon versus the bear or, uh, getting cursed by a witch doctor in, 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 uh, in the Amazon jungle when I was down there on a missionary trip, you know, tell that story. And, you know, I just had a number of stories that I that, that I had canned up and put together into mm-hmm. kind of a stand-up act, and uh, that I could use as I needed uh, uh, as I went along. And after that, you know, I became sort of comfortable with the idea of standing up in front of people and and making them laugh, because mm-hmm. uh, I have I've always been very fortunate to have friendly audiences who would laugh at my jokes and not throw rotten tomatoes at me. And uh, uh, so once I was doing that, I started gaining more confidence and sort of, I could sort of step into this persona, uh, who I call famous guy, you know, when right now I'm not being Jim, I'm being famous guy, Jim and famous guy is, you know, good at talking and doesn't say too many ums. And, you know, there's all kinds of skills that he has where he can remember people's faces and names and shake hands and make eye contact. And, you know, all those, all those, those sociable friendly things. And, you know, it was just stuff that I learned a bit at a time. And, and it's like, okay, I'm going out in public now I need to remember to remember to, to remember these names and create these little you know mnemonic devices to remember people's names wherever I can and and uh, you know be be sure to, to to take note of their face so you'll be able to to realize oh I've talked to them before and I'm going to go talk to them again you know and uh, uh, you know it's very important to be able to 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 be able to say you know how have you been since the last time we talked versus it's very nice to meet you you know. <laughs> um, because, you know, if you say the wrong thing to the wrong person, then they're a little disappointed and, you know, and you, you have a little bit of responsibility. I have just a little bit of celebrity and a little bit of fame, but I want to, I want to be kind with it. I want to mm-hmm. be sure that I'm, that I'm, that I'm nice to people with it. And, uh, uh, so you take a little bit of extra care and those are all things that you learn a little bit at a time over the years. You know, you don't have to get it all at once. Yeah. It was interesting with, um, on the, uh, Rise of Feature panel yesterday with Rebecca talking about a lesson that she taught to um, Kevin, where he was uh, he was just getting really upset because all these fancy women asked the same question over and over again, and he was getting you know a little bit snarky, and she, and she said, Kevin, stop that. These are your fans, and this guy doesn't know that someone else asked the same question a week ago. To them, it's a brand new, it's it's a legitimate yeah. new question right now, and you've got to be responsible for that. And it's just, he, now he gives this talk about how you need to be kind and you need to like respect your fans. And if they ask the question, then answer it again. You know, so. Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. The most important thing you can do is when you meet the fans is to is to talk to them and be kind to them. You know, when the fans are at a, at a coming to a signing, you know, maybe I've had eight hours of con day already that day and two hours of signing and my hand is killing me because it's, it's been damaged after all the autographs, you know, but that fan who's coming up to meet me, it's the first time they've met me. It might well be the only time they meet me. And so that is the, that is the one point at which I can make that human contact and make a good, you know, make a good impression. Yeah. And, and if you're, if you're kind to that person, if you show them, if you show them warmth and human interest, uh, uh, then you get a you get much better results than if you just sort of say next, next, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and do that signing. You, you want to be able to, to, to make eye contact, to smile. Because they're going to go back and they'll say, I met Jim. He was the most, he was the nicest guy. He was a nice guy. Yeah, that's, yeah. The, that's the best thing you can possibly have yeah. said about you. Is he's, he seems like a really nice guy. 
Yeah, and some of the more aware or astute fans, when they see he's been doing that for two hours and he's still so nice, that even gives you, that puts a star above the nice. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and it's important to do that. It's important to uh, uh, not just to act kind, but to be kind to them and to, and to try yeah. and take care of them. You know, I've, I've had fans that come through where they were like, are you okay? You know, it's like, well, I'm diabetic and I'm late for my shot. And I'm like, okay, security, get over here. We need to get this person and, you know, and, and get them to, to where they can get their, their insulin. Uh, uh, here, let me sign your books while we walk, you know, I'll yeah. walk you towards the door and sign the books. I'll be right back guys. You know, but yeah, but yeah let's get you taken care of. This is ridiculous. But that goes around because it's everybody else online saying, what's he doing? Oh my gosh. You know, yeah, it, exactly. it makes a difference. Uh, a dear friend who's no longer with us, Ann McCaffrey. Um, mm, yeah. Because she was one of our judges and she would come out every year for the Rise of the Future workshop week and uh, awards event. And she would, um, we'd have signings with with the winners and she loved coming there with, with her kids, mm -hmm. you know, no matter how much, even if they're the same age as her, you know, because there's no, this, you know, anybody can win the contest. Yeah, tremendous and, respect for Ann, love Todd. Yeah, and... When she come out, she even wear a, a, a wrist brace because yep. the lines would just be like so long when we go to these signings there. But she was, she said, oh, I'm signing every book there, even though, you know, she would do that and she'd, do, she'd pace herself because yep. this is, she was 80 years old at that time. And uh, still she was going to make sure she signed it for every fan that asked for an autograph. Sort of hoping I can be a grumpy old man someday and just sort of bring an ink pad along and just sort of Hulk slam my fist down on the pad and then on the book. And that would hurt less. But at the same time, I go, no, people want to have your name on there. Just, just, just draw the picture again. Yeah. You know, you know, draw the little word picture. Exactly. And it, it, it definitely pays off. Oh, definitely. Definitely. You know, it's interesting because I love – fantasy is one of my favorite genres. I mean, I read all over the, the spectrum with, it, with this podcast. But um, it was uh, interesting where uh, – I don't know how much you read Andre Norton, if you knew her at all. I never met. Okay, she wrote this series called the Witch World series. Of course, yeah. And that just hooked me. She was a, a judge for Rise of the Future, and she was a dear, dear person. She lived in the South, but in the later years, um, her arthritis was so bad she couldn't travel anymore. Right. But um, she was like that whole thing of of the sword and sorcery, and mm -hmm. you know that type of of, of fantasies. I really like, which is one of the reasons I really like the Dresden Files because it's that type of stuff. What drew you to that? Because that's, like I said, I'm, I'm fascinated with that particular aspect of fantasy. Oh, um, my first fantasy book that I remember reading was picking up a copy of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe at the grocery store. Because the grocery store sold a lot of books back then. Sure. And uh, I remember reading that, and I was just terribly interested in it. And and uh, uh, my my folks were, were very conservative, very conservative Christians, and so they were concerned with with my fantasy intake. Yeah. Uh, but my sisters, I had two older sisters who were twelve and fourteen years older than me, so I effectively had three moms, and uh, uh, they uh, uh, made sure to supply me with with fantasy books and so on. So you know, when I got sick that year and I was out of school for a week with strep throat, you know, they came home with the Lord of the Rings box set, followed up by the the Han Solo uh, uh, trilogy by Brian Daly, where right after this was right after Star Wars had come out, and yeah. so there were you know there were products coming out. And, uh, uh, and I remember reading those and then I went to, uh, I went from there to, uh, 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 the book of three, uh, and the, and the, the, the Pride Inc. Chronicles by, by, uh, by Llewellyn. And, um, uh, 
Is that right? No, Lloyd Alexander. Lloyd Alexander. And uh, uh, I just remember the two L's. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and then from there, it was every other fantasy book I could find. And there weren't a whole ton of them there in right. the late 70s, early 80s, you know. So it was like I'm reading I'm reading Gore and John Carter and Conan the Barbarian and Fafard and the Grey Mauser. And, you know, these, these, you know, these great books of the day and, you know, reading the new ones as they came out, you know, Dragonlance and Elfstones yeah. and, 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 and picking those up. And that was what I wanted was to write sword and swords and horses fantasy. That was, that's what, that was what I was going to do. This whole urban fantasy thing was a school project that got completely out of hand. Yeah. When it, when I read that part, like how that came to be, when you, how you started it, it reminded me a lot of, um, uh, Stephen King with his Dark Tower series, how he got that started when he was in, in college mm -hmm. and he was making the notes and doing that thing and then obviously had to polish it up quite a bit right. later on. But I thought, I mean, oh, wow, that's yeah. that type of thing. So so a college project, how explain me. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, I had been taking classes uh, from the School of Professional Writing at OU. Deborah Chester was the professor teaching at that time. And... Uh, um, and she's the one who taught me really everything I needed to know about writing. I mean, she was yeah. an amazing teacher for that. But I was writing Swords and Horses fantasy, and I, I kept writing it, and I kept writing, you know, subpar stuff. And she knew that I had it in me to do better. So at one point, she came to me and said, listen, Jim, whenever we're in class and we're talking about storycraft, you're always mentioning Buffy and Babylon 5 and the Anita Blake books by Laurel Hamilton, you know, as examples of the storycraft uh, that 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 we're using, have you ever considered writing um, science fiction or writing an urban fantasy or writing something from a first person point of view? And I said, no, you know, kind of outraged <laughs> uh, because, you know, I was, I was a swords and horses a fantasy author writing third person and I knew exactly what I was going to do. And she says, maybe you should try it. And I, and, and I, I refused. And we had, we had that talk for a couple of semesters and a couple of novels that didn't go so well. And so one semester I decided, okay, I'm going to prove her wrong. And the way I was going to, I decided to do it was to do absolutely everything she told me. I was going to be her good little writing monkey and fill out all her little forms and do her little worksheets and her character outlines. And she would see what terrible cookie cutter pablum crap emerged from that kind of process. And so I did, I did everything she told me to. And I wrote the first book, The Dresden Files, you know, which, which, which showed her, but. <laughs> But I remember I came in with the first couple of chapters, the, you know, the first two chapters of, of Stormfront, and I put them down on our desk, and it was a consult course where you came in and, and, and talked for about 40 minutes. You, know, you, you turned in 50 pages, and then you talked about them. And I had turned in, you know, the first couple of chapters, and she read it, and she looks up at me, and she says, you did it. I said, what? Because this was a, she was a teacher who did not believe in, in sparing the rod, you know, right. as far as, I mean, it, it, she would, her critique would include such things as rolling up my chapters, leaning across the desk, popping me in the head with them and asking, what were you thinking? You know, I mean, the, <laughs> she was, she, she did not believe in, 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 in being kind to the student because she was trying to prepare you for New York. And in New York, you know, they don't, they, they don't stop and kindly explain everything. Yeah. They just send you a rejection letter. Uh, uh, so she was, she was getting us ready for that. And she said, you did it. I said, what do you mean? She says, you'll be able to sell this. I don't know if this will be the first thing you sell, but it is a professional quality. You will be able to sell this, hang on to it. And she says, now I want you to come back in next week with an outline for the rest of it. And she meant the rest of the novel. 
And here I am, I had, uh, you know, I'm the kind of person who sort of is, is uh, I, I don't do halfways very often. Yeah. And uh, so I came in the next week with an outline for a 20-book series with a, with a, a big old three-book trilogy, capstone it all off. And I explain, I started explaining it to her, and I went through the whole 40-minute course just just running out, off at the mouth. And I, I got down to, you know, two minutes left, and I, I realized that I hadn't allowed her to talk the whole time. And sort of, I, I stopped and looked at her and said, what do you think? And I can remember the look on her face, you know, where the look on her face that said, I just got this kid on board. I can't kill his enthusiasm now. So she looks back at me just as even, just, you know, just as deadpan as possible yeah. and says, I think if you sell a 20 book series, you should be doing all right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, not telling me that there was no way I was going to sell a 20 book series, you know, to, yeah. as a first time author coming out. And because she didn't tell me it was impossible, I, I did it. You know, and that was just kind of how it worked out. Uh, I've really gotten a long way in my career on being too dumb to know that something can't be done and and then just going ahead and doing it. So now that actually brings up a good point, which I've not actually discussed before with anybody. I mean, you say that, you know, self-deprecatingly, but there is some merit to if you don't know that something can't be done, you know, is it then still impossible. Yeah, exactly. Um, we are far more limited by imaginary goblins than we are by the actual world that yeah. is around us. That is, the, that is the downside of our intelligence is that we imagine things uh, uh, that should not stop us that are sometimes that we think they're there. Uh, and I think that is what gets in the way of, of most people becoming a writer is they start imagining things that, you know, they're not real. The obstacles between you and becoming a professional writer are not real. It's just a matter of, you know, spending the time, uh, assembling the skills and learning how to use them. And so many people say, well, I'm not a writer. I'm just not a writer. Yeah, you are. Everybody is. Everybody's got a story they can tell. It's just right. a matter of learning the skills uh, uh, to tell that story in a way that, that make people happy. Exactly. And you've got – so from the moment you started writing to where you became published, what was that time lapse there? Um, I wrote my first book when I was 19. I got my first sale when I was 29. Um, it took me 10 years of working a part-time job, not getting paid. You know, I would occasionally go home and at Christmas I had this one, this one cousin who would always come up and ask me, Hey, did you get a real job yet? You still writing? You get a real job yet? And it just for 10 years, I got that. I'd be like, no, I'm still trying. And, uh, finally one year after things had gotten sold and, uh, this was after my second series had sold and I was also going into hardback as well. And I realized, oh my gosh, I'm going to be able to support my family, you know, with my work. Uh, which was a brand new thing. I'd had 10 years where that wasn't true. And uh, I got to go home that Christmas. And when he said, you get, get a real job yet? And I said, I kind of put my hand on my arm around his shoulder. And I said, you know, I've thought about it. I think I just won't get a real job. And <laughs> I swear that was one of the most satisfying things I've ever gotten to do in my life. Yeah. Uh, uh, it was very, it was deeply, after 10 years of, you know, wondering if I could do it. I mean, I had my little writing cubby just covered in propaganda, you know, World War II style propaganda posters I had made for myself about not giving up you know, about, about continuing on. And honestly, I think that is the single most important quality in being a writer is persistence. I'm not even sure that that is the most important uh, characteristic that you can put in a, 
uh, in a protagonist, you know, in a, in a character that you're writing, you know, that is the one thing they absolutely have to have is that mm -hmm. persistence. And uh, I, I wonder if that's not just because of the writing process that we've got going, yeah. you know, because you you have to get in and and you have to you have to put that on your characters. Yeah. So now speaking of Harry Dresden, sure. So um, is he a um, an amalgam? Is he somebody particular, or is he just uh, an oh, if? God. Is he just an if? Um, my imaginary friend. I, I put him together um, in a very artificial sort of way uh, because I, I wasn't really interested in writing urban fantasy, you know, when I started off doing it, and so. When I put this character together, I just said, "Okay, I'm just going to do what my what my teacher suggested and assemble him out of out of similar characters." So I, what I did was I took a bunch of private eyes that I liked and a bunch of wizards that I like, and I chopped them all into pieces and then stitched them together into Harry Dresden. You know, so. Uh, Sherlock Holmes was tall and skinny, so it's like, okay, I'm going to start there. That seems to be a wizard thing, too, so those two things yeah. go together well. And I'm going to need somebody insouciant because I really like that about Spencer from Robert Parker's Spencer novels. Uh, uh, I'm going to need somebody who you know, has got all this wizard superpowers, but none, none of this subtle stuff. You know, I want to have a little bit more overt wizard wizardry. Yes. Uh, uh, so, okay, I'll start, I'll start stitching that together for, from, different, from different wizard characters that I like. And... You know, eventually I wound up with this character and what I found out was that wizards in private eyes, you know, in most uh, literature, they serve kind of the same function. You know, they don't rule the land, but they're, they're, they're the ones who sort of make the king, you know. Uh, yeah. They're the ones who have to go out and find out information where they have to delve into the underworld for it, whether it's like the literal underworld of Moria or the figurative underworld of, of the Chicago mob scene. And uh, uh, once I realized, oh, these, these, these two types of characters have a lot in common, then it was like, okay, well, then I should be able to port wizard stuff into private eye stuff and private eye stuff into wizard stuff pretty easily. And it turned out, yeah, that worked out really well. You know, from a creative standpoint, that was a, a natural fit. It was chocolate and peanut butter. That's about the best fit you can, yeah, yeah, you can exactly. conceive. So then on... Um, Again, because going back to the sword and sorcery, and I've not read the other two series. Are they also urban fantasy, or are they going to different directions? No, um, the Alara books are Lost Roman Legion meets Pokemon, and they're a fantasy series. Okay, and I, I have short pitches to, to sell all of them. Uh, uh, and then, I, and then the the new series is a steampunk series that is sort of. Um, uh, uh, hornblower, uh, you know, hornblower meets uh, uh, Victorian England. Uh, uh, and is set in a more science fiction setting, and there's talking cats, right? Uh, uh, which is the really the selling point. It's steampunk with talking cats. That's how I always should shorten that one. So good. All right. So now on. Um, so all your series are moving forward. So Harry Dresden is going to continue on. Oh yeah, for a while. Uh, we're going to do about twenty-two of the case books that uh, like we've had so far. I mean, originally the plan was for twenty, but I've never written a story this long before, so I'm going to need a couple extra books, and, and nobody seems to mind that. Uh, and then I'm going to write like a double-sized, um, double-sized book trilogy at the end to kind of capstone the whole thing. Right. Now, your one thing that I really like about your writing is um, it's very easy to read. It's um, and especially because I have, I'm reading like a book a week to prepare for the next podcast that I right. do because I won't interview someone unless I've read one of their books. Right. So I find that my comfort zone is something that I can just escape or be into, uh, you know, join another world for a little bit and then come back to mine. 
And I don't have to get 20 different storylines weaving in and out with each other to that requires really having to think hard to keep up with it. Right. Yours are like, it's, it's very fun. It's, it's fast moving storylines too. And anything about that, how you, is this something that you developed or learned? Cause some, some authors do the long exposition and they, and they have the story goes fast and it goes slow and then fast and slow. And yours just is a good, it clops along pretty, pretty good. And then all of a sudden the guy hits a wall and he bounces over here and has to take another direction. And then the guys that should be on his, ha having his back now are having a sword going after his back. Right. You know, so your style of writing, I'd like to discuss that a little bit because it's, it, it's really enjoyable to read. Okay. Um, well, I get bored easily <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, I, I have often read books and thought to myself, you know, the nerd audience is smarter than this. You know, a lot of times I would, I would read books and I would think to myself, the, the, the audience for this books are, are, are people who are generally speaking, very intelligent. They're, they're usually very educated. You know, even if they don't have a formal education, they're going to be very smart at whatever it is they do. You know, if they're doing, if they're doing mechanic work, they're going to be a, a good mechanic, you know, because they're, they're intelligent enough that they also like reading. And so I thought a lot of things, there were a lot of books that I, that I found myself reading and I would enjoy them, but I would also skip big passages yeah. to get to the parts that I thought were important. And so when I started writing, you know, I, I would just say, okay, I'm going to write the parts that I think are important. And, you know, it's like a dialogue is something that people all enjoy reading, you know, cause you could, you, cause that's what you find yourself doing when you're reading a lot of, a lot of books is, you know, you'll have these big blocks of text and then there'll be people will start talking and you'll kind of skip over the blocks to get to where people start talking. And so I said, okay, I'm going to go with a lot of dialogue in, 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 in these books because, uh, it's inherently interesting. I think mm -hmm. there's an inherent voyeur in every human being where, you know, you, you overhear a conversation at the next table and you're interested in it, even though you don't know those people, you're not, you're not part of their lives or anything like that, but they're talking about something interesting and there's a natural interest of, let me lean over and, and, and hear that. And I, I wanted to lean on that for, for my writing. So I include a lot of, included a lot of dialogue. Uh, I tried to keep, um, you know, descriptive passages as, as quick and intense as I could. Um, uh, I wanted to write a lot more about the way people thought and felt, uh, than about where they were standing, you know, at the right. moment. Um, so you, and, and dialogue is also a very good place for that as well. Although real people don't, don't communicate as openly as, as characters in a fictional book, fictional works do. But, uh, uh, but I was enjoying, you know, writing that. And so I wanted to write the parts that I really enjoyed and kind of skip over the parts that I would naturally find myself skipping over. Uh, cause again, I had that English literature degree and I'd read an awful lot of, I think it was Mark Twain who said, uh, you know, literature is defined by a book that everyone wants to have read, but no one wants to read. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and I had gone through a lot of books that were exactly that, what Mark Twain described. And so I wanted to write books that people wanted to read. Uh, and I knew that I would, I, I might not ever be a, a literary figure by doing that, but I, I wanted to write books that people enjoyed and had fun writing. Uh, cause that's really what I want. I, 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 I'm kind of a mental morphine dealer. I want people to, to be able to get out of the, the real world just for a while yeah. and to be able to take a break and look at this other world and, and to imagine different things and imagine maybe even, you know, maybe better things, uh, than what they have to face on a regular basis. And, uh, uh, that was what I think informed my style more than anything. 
You know, it's like, yeah. I just want to write the good parts version of, of, of that's of a good us. answer. Yeah. That's a great answer. And it's interesting. You mentioned that thing now about, you know, being able to escape right now and into another world before you have to come back to your own. It's interesting because like Pulp Fiction, which is not dissimilar to this type of stuff where mm-hmm. it's just, it pulls you along there, which is something that, that Hubbard wrote quite a bit. Because it was right after World War I, before World War II, they'd had the Depression. They'd gone through, you know, the um, just half, half America was out of work and the other half was uncertain as, do I still have a job? And so right. they loved that type of fiction they could just kind of like escape to yeah. before they'd come back. And with the divisiveness, and I'm not going politics here, but right. with the divisiveness they have going on here, some people need a safe place they can go to and oh, just kind of like chill. I, in a lot of ways, I think our culture is at war with itself. And uh, yeah, I want to write books that people can can read and escape into and 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 just have a good time with. Um, really, I think that's so important, you know, that you have a place where you can get yeah. away. And and the way things have been going lately, things have just been invading every area of of, of nerddom, you know, where there's there's always somebody who's angry. And and I don't want to be angry. I just want to write books that that people enjoy and that people yeah. get done with and go, oh, that was really good. I want to read it again. Which is one thing that's really cool about this. The people I've talked to at this conference, you know, so far, um, have that a, a similar, you know, prospectus of life that they want to just let's have a good time, let's let's chill. Exactly. You know? Let's find the things that we have in common, and because I think I think people are getting really tired of 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 the culture war and the division, and and I think there are so many people who are just like, you know what? Can can we just go watch? You know, can, can we just go watch an old movie together and have fun? You know, yeah. with it and that sort of thing. Yeah, and not worry about what Let's kind go of watch butter. Gremlins. <laughs> there we go. So now on, um, I know that oh, this has been ten years or so ago at a I don't know if it's Dragon Con or something like that. You came by and Sarah, uh, one of your super fans back at the office, um, you came up and she was showing you the latest release of Battlefield Earth. You said, "Oh yeah, I read this book before." Oh yeah, Battlefield Earth. Oh yeah, first Battlefield Earth. I still go back and reread that occasionally. That, that that is pulp science fiction of of the top rating, you know. And so that's what I look at myself as. Is I look at myself as somebody who I write popcorn fiction, but I want it to be the very best popcorn you've ever had, you know. And, yeah. And I think that was that was uh, uh, that's a lot of what Hubbard was doing when he wrote that first Battlefield Earth, because it's like, okay, this is this is pulp science fiction, but let's have fun. Yeah. And, and it is a fun book. Yeah. It was. Uh... It's interesting, so many authors I've talked to, like Brandon Sanderson, that's how I learned, you know, uh, plot and pacing. You know, that's how I learned how to, you know. Very well done. It's very, very well done in that book. And then, um, yeah, it's just just come up multiple times. It's it's a really good book for that type of thing. And and Craig Martell thought he loved it because it just, it has so many genres within the one book. I think the thing that, I think the thing that that Hubbard did very very well with with with, with the first book of Battlefield Earth was now, Battlefield Earth is the one that's got the one volume the, the single yeah yeah and then there's Mission Earth following right, that right, exactly but battle, in Battlefield Earth uh, um, I think the thing that he did very very well was he he was very good at asking and now what and using that question to just keep expanding the world that they were in bigger and bigger you know because it it started off as this you know this very tribal society that that really had very few concerns and very few you know, worries about the future. And it turns into eventually a planetary society mm-hmm. that is interacting with, on a galactic level. And it's like, you wouldn't have expected it to go there from where it started. You know, you just thought, okay, there's some monsters. They've taken over the earth. We'll fight them and, and the earth will be free again. Great. I expected that in the story, but then he goes, 
and now what? Because there's future plans and there's, you know, the, the planet has a lease that has to be taken care of. And, you know, it's like, I wouldn't, you would never have thought of these things, but, yeah. but yet you can apply them, you know, in, in these, you know, even in these extraordinary stories, he was so good at taking these, these basic elements of saying, well, economy does have to come into this somewhere, you know, and, you know, politics is going to have to come into this somewhere. And, and, and you, Eventually, you know, you, you start to see, oh, he's really building this big world here. And, yeah. But it starts off, it starts off small, and that's a great way to do it. And just because it's so snowing outside right now, but right outside our window is Pike's Peak, which was... Right. Which was the start of the... That's where the book takes place. Right, yeah, exactly. It's right here in, yeah. in Colorado. Thousand yeah, years in the right future, here. Colorado Springs. A thousand years in the future. Well, yeah, and it's it's safe because of all the uranium. And you know, <laughs> exactly, I, I owned a cabin in Evergreen that had uranium that had uranium problems, <laughs> and we had to we had to spend a bunch of money fixing the water and so on. You know, and it's like, oh yeah, that happens up here. Yeah. So that's um, anyway that was that was pretty that was pretty cool there. So now, um, do you like? Have you ever read any of Hubbard's uh, fantasy? No, I haven't. He's got. Um, John Campbell, who obviously the yeah. you know, the dude there for science fiction, um, he said he wrote a, a letter to to uh, Ron Hubbard saying, um, "I reserve the Arabian Nights stories to to Hubbard." He wrote to all his authors saying, "Look at, he's got the Arabian Nights because nobody does it better than him." Uh-huh. So if you've not read it, I'd, I'd like to send you a copy of his Slaves and, and Masters of Sleep, which is oh yeah the, the sword and sorcery type. Yeah, thing. I'll check it out. Yeah, Arabian Nights type stuff. So on. Um, Again, this is for writers of the future, and we've got our, you know, we've been in it for 40 years, and uh, the thing that the authors come to is, is like, the encouragement, the, you know, don't give up, like you said, the persistence type stuff. So when you talk at your, on your panels, what's like the most common questions that you get asked, because I'd like to distill that as part of this. I know you get all over the boards probably, but. Oh, yeah. You know. Um, a lot of where do you get your ideas? And, you know, it's, it's, it's not the ideas that are the problem, you know, right. uh, it, it's learning how to express them. That's the problem, you know, and, and learning how to do that effectively. Um, let's see, how did you get started in, in fantasy? And I tell the story about trying to prove my, my writing teacher yeah. wrong, you know, uh, how did you get started on, where did the Codex Alera come from? That came from an online bet. Uh, uh, that was going on in a, in a writer's forum where it's a bunch of us unpublished writers were together talking about writing. It was the Delray online writers workshop, uh, back in the late nineties. And I, I got in a, in an argument, uh, uh, and it was one of those arguments where you hit reply on the email and then caps lock, and then you start typing, you know, one mm-hmm. of those. Yeah. And, uh, so one side of the argument was arguing that as long as you had a sufficiently good idea, uh, uh, you know, sufficiently advanced idea was indistinguishable from good writing, <laughs> you know? So as long as you had a good enough idea, it didn't matter if you were a bad writer, your idea would sell. And they said, look at Jurassic Park. And that was, you know, that was their example, not mine. Uh, uh, and then my position that I took was the opposite of that. And I said, no matter how old or tired the idea, a sufficiently good writer can make it new and make it good. If you're, if you're creative enough and put your own spin on it, how many versions of Romeo and Juliet have we seen? Sure. You know, and so that discussion went back and forth for a long time. And uh, finally, the guy that was leading the other side uh, says, why don't you put your money where your mouth is? Why don't you let me give you a terrible idea and we'll see you write it into something that's sellable. And, you know, I was about 25 at the time and had a bit, might've had a bit of an attitude. So conceivable. I, so I wrote, I wrote back to him and I said, no, why don't you give me two terrible ideas? I'll use them both. And 
So the guy says, all right, first terrible idea is Lost Roman Legion. I'm so sick of all the Lost Roman Legions. They all should have been found by now. That's my first terrible idea is Lost Roman Legion. I said, all right. And he says, I said, what's your, what's your next terrible idea? And he says, Pokemon. I'm so sick of Pokemon. And so I'm like, all right. And I took the two ideas and I said, how do we, how do we make this into a good book? And I said, all right, well, let's do some research. So I researched Lost Roman Legions. And the one that they're usually talking about when they talk about Lost Roman Legions is the Ninth Hibernian Legion that marched away into a thunderstorm uh, north of the wall in England and never came home. And uh, uh, we don't know if the Scots killed them all or if they decided they'd rather be Scottish than Roman. But, uh, uh, you know, something happened to that legion. But I decided, you know what? They marched away into a thunderstorm and were never seen again. Let me just say that thunderstorm was going to take them somewhere else. And so where, where did they go? And I thought, land of the Pokemon. So I went and researched Pokemon, which is itself uh, 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 two ideas put together. And that's uh, one, they take the concept of kami from the Shinto religion. And a kami is a spirit that resides inside a, a natural formation of some kind. So a mountain or a tree or a stream, they all have a kami. You know, a mountain has a kami that you'd better respect because it's a huge mountain. And, but even a pebble has a kami uh, uh, that you should also respect. But if you don't, what's it going to do? It's a pebble. Um, and so I decided to take, and then they fused that with professional wrestling, and they made Pokemon. Uh, so I decided to take uh, to take the the Kami concept, and I, I put it in this world where the Roman Legion was going to go, and. Uh, uh, I started. I started looking at that and saying, "Well, what are the Romans going to do with it? Well, they're going to they're going to learn how to use the new stuff, and they're going to they're going to conquer things. That's what Rome does, and they're going to build Rome. That's what legions did. Legions right. were a colony force that could go anywhere and build Rome." And so uh, I had them go off to this land of the uh, of the Pokemon, and I had to come up with a good name for him. And uh, I didn't wasn't sure what I was going to call him. And I was watching Big Trouble in Little China, and we got to the point where the old sorcerer in the background says, "All movement in the universe is caused by tension between positive and negative furies." And I went, "Ooh, furies! It's even Greco-Roman. I could use that." <laughs> and uh, uh, so I called them. I had the Romans call them furies, and I, I designed this you know this magic system, and I gave them uh, you know I gave them a couple of thousand. Years years to ferment and to build this new society. And so I decided that the, the German and the, you know, the Roman soldiers and German mercenaries that were making up the legions at that time had wound up building a society that was a mixture of, of cosmopolitan centers and German freeholds out in the countryside. And, you know, it had a, a had, had developed sort of a modified feudal system based on how many of these furies you could use, because that's just practical. You know, uh, when you've got the guy who can, who can bring up a volcano in the middle of your field, Probably he can be in charge because if he's not, he might bring up a volcano in the middle of your field, you know. Yeah. And so they they develop their their government sort of based on being able to to wield these furies and and who could use it and, and the more you could use the higher up in the hierarchy you were. And uh, gave him a couple thousand uh, a couple thousand years to figure things out, and then I started writing my story that started with a hidden prince on a farm in the middle of nowhere. I didn't make that rule for fantasy epic fantasy, you know. That was done for me many times yeah. many years before. And, uh, and that's where that came, but that's where it came from was from that bet. And I got the first, you know, the first hundred pages or so of the first book written. And I'm like, this is pretty good. I think I can sell this. And so we didn't know how copyright was going to work online at that time, you know, so we didn't know if you publish something on, on the web, did that, you know, void your, your world publishing rights, you know, for example. Mm -hmm. So could you still sell it? So I went back to the guy and said, yeah, I think I've got something going good here, but I'm, I'm not going to post it here because I think I'll be able to sell it if I, if I keep working on it. And the guy goes, oh, so in other words, I'm right. And I was like, okay, you know what? Yeah, you're right. So he got to be right. And I got a six book contract. <laughs> Everybody wins, but you win a little bit more. Well, perhaps, yeah. Yes. So now for um, 
for writers, what have you observed now? This is the, from the other angle, from your perspective as, okay, here I am as a writer, and you know you've gone through. What are some of the, the most common mistakes that a person will make? Not just like, okay, you, you need to make sure you have good grammar. So, I mean, that's right. not that, that stuff given, but just in terms of, um, like you talked about, even this, this fantasy that you write, you still do your homework, you yes. know, your research and make sure you've you know, yeah, got that. I, I, I try and draw everything from something that happened in history. Almost everything I do, uh, people have actually done it. And there's that foundation of a fundamental humanity built into it. Um, so even the, even the, the wild things that happen in my books, most of them have a, have a historical basis somewhere. Yeah. As I'm, I'm finding, again, all I've read so far is Dresden Files, but like my willingness to suspend disbelief, you know, with, with the magic that gets done, although I'm really cool on magic, you know, yeah. it'd be totally okay with me for it to be real, but everything else is like, they're real people. They're real yeah. scenarios. It's real stuff. Well, I, I think that one of the philosophies I've carried into, into writing is, is that whether it's magic or or physical strength or or any other kind of power, that power is power, and it has the same sort of effect on people. And and how do you deal with it? And how do you use it responsibly? And you know how do you how do you stop its abuse? And how do you avoid abusing it? And uh, that's all. And these are all questions that come to me because I was a huge Spider-Man fan when I was younger. And with great power comes great responsibility. And I and I I took Stan Lee very seriously. And uh, uh, so. The, really, that is the theme of, of the underlying theme of, I think, the Dresden Files is power and responsibility. Um, although I never set out to make that a theme, I just wanted to tell a story. But it, as it turns out, if you really involve yourself in writing the story and you craft and you care about it, the stuff that you believe goes in there, whether you want it to or not, mm -hmm. you know, you, you wind up putting that stuff in your stories. But as far as, as far as new writers go, I think the biggest mistake that new writers make is that they are too reserved. They're too, they're too conservative. They're too, um, they don't exaggerate enough. You know, everybody is very concerned about, well, I don't want to do something silly. And so, you know, I'm going to, you know, e even the ones who are very, very careful, I'm going to base this character in, in, you know, closely in historical, in historical precepts. And, you know, I'm going to make this person, you know, the first character that I wrote was, uh, uh, for the Dresden files was actually a character named Nick Christian in the first version of it. There was short stories that I wrote for a class and Nick, Christian was an average height, average looking, average guy, and, you know, doing, you know, this exceptional stuff. And, and, you know, and the characters that were around him, I tried to make them very realistic and, and like somebody that you would run into. And my teacher, you know, Debbie Chester read it and was like, yeah, these people are too flat and boring to be in this story. I mean, I believe that you could meet these people, but, you know, we're, we're doing fiction here and you have to, you have to exaggerate a bit more. And she says, okay, let me, I did the exact same thing. I started writing Westerns and I, I wrote these, I wrote these Western novels with these very historically aligned characters. And my teacher kept telling me they're too dull. You know, you have to, you have to take some chances. You have to, artistically speaking, you have to exaggerate a little bit more to kind of create these images in people's minds. And she said, I finally got angry at him one semester, and I started off a book with a seven-foot-tall cowboy riding a donkey so that he had to hold his legs up to keep him from dragging on the ground, and he didn't have any shoes, and he was only dressed in red long johns. He had a bandolier of dynamite over one shoulder and a shotgun over the other, and two, you know, an empty, an empty knife scabbard and two empty pistol scabbards, you know, on his gun belt. And 
you know, wearing a hat, wearing wearing a top hat that he'd obviously recovered from a from a refuse pile somewhere because that was all he had to wear, riding into town. And she said, "My teacher read that and said you'll be able to sell this," <laughs> you know. <laughs> Uh, and she said, I just did the most ridiculous thing I could possibly think of. And it was the right thing to do. And because, you know, at that time she was still too uh, insecure and, and still too reserved as a writer. And as an artist, you've, you've got to take those chances. You've got to exaggerate a little bit. You know, you've got to, you know, create those larger than life characters in order to draw people's attention to you. And I, I think that is what new writers, that's the mistake they make the most is they, 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 they pull in too much and it's like, no, there's, there's a wilder, bigger, better story inside of you. Go find that one, yeah you know, and use that one. And, uh, uh, that, that is what I, that is what I consistently find myself encouraging, uh, the writers that I mentor to do, uh, is you've got to, you know, you've got to, you've got to go bigger, you've got to go broader, you know, you've got to yeah. uh, take chances. Which is actually makes even more sense, at least right now, because with the way that the news is going on and the way that the, the media is constantly spinning something and they have to spin it bigger and better and badder constantly, yes, yes. you've got some serious competition writing fiction to keep up oh. with what these newspapers are writing. Oh, I know. I, I feel sorry for the parody writers. How do they even work these days? <laughs> you know? Yeah. But, uh, uh, but yeah, yeah. And, you know, just... For the sake of doing the story, and, and and not just for the readers, but for yourself as a writer, when you create these bigger characters, you know uh, uh, the more exaggerated characters, it becomes easier to to hang uh, to hang the words, the, the the tags and traits on them, the words you want to associate with this character, or the props that you want to associate with this character to create that image in the reader's mind. And when you when you yourself have the more exaggerated character, it becomes so much easier to do that and to do your job. Mm -hmm. And you can reel in that character to make them real because even though Harry Dresden is this NBA tall wizard running around modern Chicago in a big black leather coat with a, with a wizard's quarterstaff, you know, I can make him believable when I have him react to the emotional things that he runs into, you know, when, when he loses a friend, when he makes a friend, you know, when somebody shows up for him in his hour of need, you know, he has recognizably human emotional genuine reactions that anybody would have you know to have in that and because i can do that i can make him you know this ridiculous you know this ridiculous cartoon of a person really cuz he cuz really he is but if his heart is is mm -hmm. is genuine you know the reader the reader's going to be able to pick up on that the reader's going to going to look at it and say yeah that's exactly how I, how i would react to that you know the biggest selling point of john wick you know they show up and kill his puppy and he murders 78 people it's like <laughs> yeah that's about proportionally that feels <laughs> exactly. right and that's yeah. what you what you want you just want that reader to have that that uh, that the reaction to go oh those emotions they feel genuine and mm -hmm. if you can do that then you can get the reader to follow you anywhere which is, which is a very good point. So now um, we're down to our last like five minutes here. So you mentioned the one thing about you got to make your characters stop being so conservative yeah. with, your, with your writing. Um, yeah, take some chances. You might look a little silly. That's okay. Uh, that's gonna, it's part of the learning process. Yeah. And in terms of learning process, at least – like Jerry Purnell, um, Owen Hubbard, Heinlein, a few others said, throw away your first half million, million words is what they were saying to build, to build your own voice. At what point do you feel like you had your voice as compared to those you're trying to emulate or like, I want to be as successful as this person here, just where now it's, this is Jim Butcher? Well, it started, it started with the first of the Dresden Files uh, because that was when I had 
really stopped trying to look like other people. You know, I mean, I was trying to do J, I was doing a J.R.R. Tolkien impersonation until then. And when I went to this, it was like, okay, well, that's not how hard boiled uh, private eye stories work. I have to have something different here. And it, I did no idea what to do. So I just did whatever seemed to fit and feel right at the moment. And that was when I first started developing my voice. And I don't think it was till book four of, of, of the, the Dresden series that I really kind of hit my beat and, and started figuring out exactly how I wanted to tell these stories. But at that point, I think I did. And, and, and book five went well and book six and then book seven came out in hardback and, and book seven's the one it's called deadbeat. And book seven is the one that I tell people to start reading because I feel like that's really the best example of, of where the Dresden files get started and everything before then I was, I was learning to ride the bike still. Yeah. Uh, but by the time I get there, then, you know, I'm doing the cool tricks. Uh, uh, so but and I'm still learning, and I don't know how things are going to go in the future because you know I'm the book I'm writing right now is a very different book than the rest of the Dresden Files books. Those are all uh, Harry Dresden. The, the books that I write for Harry Dresden are basically the worst weekend of his year. You know that's kind of how I think of it. What what's the worst weekend of his year this year? Okay, I'm going to write about that. And this book that I'm writing right now is Dresden over the course of a year after he's had a bunch of really bad things happen to him, and he's at the end of his rope, and he's kind of a broken person. And you know how do you you know, the one guarantee that we have in life is that occasionally life is going to walk up to us and hit us in the face with a shovel. That just happens and mm -hmm. you can't avoid that. But what you can determine is what happens after that. You know, what do you do after that? And and that's where Dresden is right now is he's been hit in the face with a shovel and he's got to decide, you know, how he's going to get back up and get moving again and who he's going to be. And it's a very hard story to write because I went, I've gone through some similar things and, um, you know, you kind of mine all that from your own experiences. You know, writing is simple is the quote. You rip, yeah. you rip apart your soul and you put it on a page. <laughs> and and that's what I'm doing, you know, with this story. And, and I'm, I'm facing so many difficult and painful things in my own life as I'm writing them for him. And it's it's difficult sometimes cathartic it it i i hope so <laughs> i mean i i should be done yeah i i mean i would i would like to be uh I, I hope it'll be cathartic in the end um but you know writing these moments of you know where you write this is what a flashback feels like you know when you when you have when you've got ptsd and you're dealing with a flashback and this is what it feels like and you know i write that for the character and I, i've got to live that a few times and it, it, it's unpleasant even to go back to in memory but to do justice to the you know to, to try and make this as, as as human as possible you know that's what i'm putting in and so and i'm wondering are, how are people going to react to this because it's a very different story he's doing a lot more talking and problem solving and, and interacting with his relationships and we're doing a lot less uh, uh blowing stuff up and, and and fighting obvious bad guys and uh uh, so it's a, it's a different story and it's a different kind of pace and it's a, it's a, it's a new challenge for me. But that's the other thing uh, that I always advise new writers to do: never write the story that you know you can write. Write the story that you think is just a little bit beyond what you can do because that's how you grow. And so I'm writing the story and hopefully I'll be growing as a writer. But but boy, is it is it difficult at times. But yeah, but new writers, don't write the story you're sure you can do. Write the one you're not quite sure you can pull off. Because uh, that's where you that's where you grow. That's where you develop. That's where you find things that make people cry and make people Good. laugh. Good. And you said start with book seven. 
Oh, I think so. Yeah. Good. Yeah. The Dresden Files. I, I would prefer everybody started there. Stormfront was the book that I wrote when I knew the absolute least about how to be a good professional writer. And, and I feel bad that people start there all the time. And it's like, I was 25 when I wrote that. I, I didn't know what I was doing. It's uh, still a fun story. Oh, well, thank you very much. Yes. Thank you. Yes. You're an amazing writer. So and I really appreciate your uh, taking time for this interview. Absolutely. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. Writers of the Future can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere via Amazon.com. We're especially appreciative of our sponsor, Carnation, for supporting this podcast. Carnation was introduced in 1899, and 2024 marks its 125th birthday. So happy birthday, Carnation, and that definitely shows serious customer support. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elwin Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged for four decades. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Jim. You're very welcome. <laughs> <laughs>